newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis every week on the media issues confronting us. That is the news media. And I welcome you to the show. I am Rex Smith here with Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, and Rosemary Armeo, your media projectors as usual. Alan, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Ira, publisher emeritus of the Daily Freeman and Associated Publications in Kingston, New York. Rosemary, investigative journalist and professor at University of Albany. And I'm the former editor of the Times Union. You may have heard of it, a newspaper in Albany. So we welcome you all today. And Alan, I want you to start us off by giving us your reaction to this bit in the news. Kaylee McEnany joins Fox News as a commentator. What do we think about that, Alan? Huh? <laughs> True. Huh? It's happened. Huh? Kaylee McEnany, the former White House press secretary. You think this is a good idea? Well, it may be a good idea for her. I don't know that it will be a good idea for many people of, let's just say, Democratic to liberal persuasion. But then again, they're not watching anyway. You know, the idea of getting prestigious people to be on your air is more and more in sync with what's going on. We see it, for example, all the time now on CNN. They grab people, you know, who have moderate to semi-left positions and they put them on the air. And every once in a while, some poor Schlemiel who happens to be a Republican and their search for being balanced, they put that person on to including a former defeated United States senator from Pennsylvania. Name that senator. You're talking about Rick Santorum. I haven't uh, seen yeah. him on for a while. Do you think they got rid of him? No, no. They bring him <laughs> back every once in a while. I saw him not that long yeah. ago. But, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about these cable networks is that in order to say that they're balanced, they get some guy who is weak. For example, Fox has Juan Williams. I think he's a fairly weak commentator. But when their people were out of office, they often went to one of the major institutions, whether it's Hoover or whatever the name of the institution is. And that is something that we see happening less and more going to the cable people. Kaylee McEnany herself used to work for CNN. She first gained national attention by being a commentator on CNN. She was awful. They got rid of her, and she wound up as the press secretary. What's new is that they're now allowing onto TV as commentators people who have a known record of lying. This is a woman who has no respect for the truth and little more respect for democratic institutions. I think it's ridiculous that she has this platform. Part of the context of this hiring is that Fox is looking over its shoulder to the farther right, and they're bringing in somebody who the right has enjoyed following because of the way she dealt with the press. And it also reinforces a Fox connection with Trump. And Trump had suggested near the end of his presidency that he was fed up with Fox. And they're now re reconnecting the ties with the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, none yeah, of this is far good. the right where uh, we have Sean Spicer, of course, already on Newsmax. That is, you know, predecessor of Kayleigh McEnany. So I guess it's not surprising and her other predecessors running for governor of Arkansas. So you can either be in politics or be in the political obsessed media, I guess, after you bombed out of the White House. All right. Well, I just thought that would be a good way to get us exercised. Good start. <laughs> We turn now, let's, we need to talk about something that's really quite serious, and that is as part of our continuing trend of the media project being at the forefront of things and giving people a sense of what's coming next, we turn to Down Under, where in Australia, we may have a taste of what's coming for the United States, and that is Facebook has now stepped forward under a new law passed by the Australian government that effectively forces big tech platforms like Facebook to pay publishers for their news content. First of a kind law. It's been hotly debated. Facebook and Google opposed the initial version. Now they're coming forward to make these payments. And the question is, is this a good idea? Is this something that ought to happen in the United States? Well, you think it is, right? You think it is. You've always talked about the fact that they're using your material from newspapers without paying for it. Right, Rex? Well, that's true, but this is not just for newspapers. I mean, you're a publisher, Alan, and I don't mean the Legislative Gazette. I mean, you publish content on WAMC. So this could be a way to ameliorate the loss of news media company revenue into the hands of these titans. Anybody want to say this is a bad idea? No. We're concerned about the government intervention. Do you know that if this happens here, does that mean that the Congress is going to impose this, these regulations on Facebook and Google? And if so, is that a good idea? Good point, good Ira. Question. I'm proud of you. I don't think it would happen absent statute. Yes, is the answer. But Congress intervenes to support the media all the time, one way or another. I mean, look, WAMC is tax exempt, so taxpayers are supporting that by act of Congress. I mean, just for example. They give us Well, money. that's true. Even that. So what's the difference? Let me say, I I want the publishers to be paid for material. So I'm not in theory against the law. But what I'm suggesting, just to throw it out there, is if the government is going to say to Facebook and Google, you've got to pay these people, does that not open the door for other similar kinds of edicts, whether it's this industry or another industry? Where the money is going to go to. In Australia, it's looking like Rupert Murdoch who hardly needs more funds, is going to get most of the money coming from Google and from Facebook because he's jumped right in like Rex. He's long supported this idea, and he's in a position to get it. I'm not sure that this is a help for the local and regional news that in this country really, really is in need of support. If it all went to the New York Times and the Washington Post, then how are we ahead? That's exactly right. The smaller publications and outlets are not going to see a big benefit. The larger ones have the content that is of most interest to people around the world. And I'm afraid that the Kingston, New York Common Council is not going to generate a lot of money for the Daily Freeman. You may actually be surprised because consider the fact that uh, the Kingston Daily Freeman is now owned by a big company. And always has been. Yeah. And so that could well be a recipient of any law of this sort, which could be passed. And second, I think there might be in the shaping of a law of this sort in the United States, some political incentive for people on both sides of the aisle to step forward for the small news outlets in their communities. And since both Republicans and Democrats are beating up on big tech these days for different reasons, 
uh, with different motivations. I think there could be some traction for this in the U.S. Congress, and it could provide some dollars that will stop the bleeding out of the news media. You know, during COVID, 37,000 media jobs apparently have been lost just in, in this past year. 37,000 more on top of the cuts that have gone on and and uh, dozens more media outlets have closed. Many more have curtailed service. So I think we need to be looking at some previously unexplored avenues like this. And I wouldn't be surprised to see this take a little bit of wind in the sails in the U.S. We'll be very happy to accept any revenue that we get that we're not currently getting. But it's going to be just a pittance, and it's not going to make a hell of a lot of difference in terms of saving publications and broadcast outlets from laying off people or going under. By the way, Rex, let's be fair. We've been covering sure. this particular story. You've been raising it over the months that we have done this show. Prescient, uh, I tell you. Prescient. Yes, right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Australia is very different from the United States. After all, they do have kangaroos. They do. They do but wild ones at that. Yes. That's a Quite question different. of what's in the pouch. That's exactly what you're raising here. More money in your pouch. Oh, oh, I get it. I get it. What's in the pouch? Yeah, Yeah, I see. I see. All right. What this is all a part of is, of course, the digital transition. And here's one of the interesting topics. Give me just a second to set this up. Let me show you another way in which the digital world has changed the traditional role of the media gatekeeper. Uh, And this goes to the forced resignation of Donald McNeil Jr., Uh, Donald McNeil, who, full disclosure, is an old friend of mine, science and public health reporter at the New York Times, resigned under pressure last month after 45 years at the paper. He was their lead reporter on the coronavirus. We heard him a lot on the Times podcast, The Daily. He has uh, big, great byline stories. Donald McNeil was forced to resign after students and parents who were on a trip for high school students in Peru in 2019 complained that Donald McNeil, who had been an expert guide on this trip, had used a racial slur and made other insensitive remarks. So he was punished for this stuff when he got back in 2019. Now, two years later, it surfaces and he resigns. Okay, here's the part that I think is interesting that is new in the news. He published a four-part essay, 20,000 words, which let me tell you, takes a long time to read, that talks about what happened, the circumstances of his departure, and was very critical of New York Times leadership. Here's what's interesting, I think. That was published on a digital platform called Medium, where a lot of voices are heard. Medium is one of those platforms like Substack, where columnists are now given freedom to offer their own product. McNeil published that on Medium, and the New York Times, though it didn't allow him to make much of a statement during his departure from the paper, wrote a story about it and made a hot link to it so that anybody who's reading the story could immediately go and look at the full statement of Donald McNeil excoriating the New York Times. Isn't that interesting? I think it's interesting. The editors of the Times wouldn't allow this statement in their own publication, but they allow a hot link from their publication that takes traffic somewhere else. You make the New York Times sound far more wise and sagacious than they do in that 20,000-word article, however. Well worth the time to read it. And Donald McNeil was railroaded. He was forced out of a job that he is supremely qualified to hold. I think he probably was cheated out of a deserved Pulitzer Prize this year. This piece is not whining or filled with, you know, self-pitying. It's a hard look at how newspapers are handling racial tension and other problems with personnel inside very divided newsrooms these days. And it is devastating. And the fact that it's connected, that it's on Medium, 
he himself says, look, this isn't a witch hunt against me. Witch hunts usually end in far worse things for the victims. I at least had my say. And he did get one. And he's so articulate and so compelling that I hope he gets hired by the Washington Post or the Financial Times or some other place. He is a voice that should not be lost. He committed no offense that was worthy of firing when you read this piece. So he accomplished his goals. And if Medium helped him to do it, wow, I'm all for it. I think that's exactly right. I think that what it shows is the declining role of gatekeeper of the legacy media. There are so many ways in which voices can be heard, even voices less powerful than a leading New York Times reporter who's lost his job. But it is a remarkable decision. And I wonder how the decision was made at the Times and where the decision was made to say, okay, we're going to go ahead and link to this story. Linking, after all, by the way, in the in the code of ethics these days of the side of professional journalists, providing a hot link to content is considered an ethical minimum. That is, you're not supposed to refer to content that other people have published without giving readers a link to that content. So this was the right thing to do ethically by the Times, but still it's kind of a bold statement and you have to wonder, I suppose that I would suspect that went at least to the editor of the Times and perhaps even to the publisher to say, look, we're gonna do a hot link to this thing that makes Mm. us at the Times look really bad. Well, a lot of what we're seeing here in a situation like the one you're bringing up now, Rex, has to do with the politics of the organization. What's going on in the guts of the organization? I know NPR has it. I think WNYC has it in New York City, in which people of color, people who are very concerned about images and the rest of it, make their complaints known. And it raises all of these issues which may be overreactive on the part of the entity of the Times, for example. Yeah, I agree, Alan. I think that's part of this. I'm surprised that we're talking about, you know, the technology of how he got his say. The editor who comes off the worst in this is Dean Beckay, who is himself a black man from the South and should have been most offended by the racial slur that was used. But in the context of how he said it and what he said and who he was speaking to, there's no need for firing to lose your one of your leading voices on pandemics and diseases. It just does not come off well. And I'm not sure that there is anything new and brilliant about newspapers exposing wrongdoing that both the New York Times and the Washington Post have done this previously. Jason Blair comes to mind when there was a huge eight-page report on how the paper messed up with that fabulous at that time. So there's there's nothing new in this. We do expose our wrongdoing. But in this case, what's extraordinary, it isn't the reporter who did the wrongdoing, it's actually management. There's even something about the rightness of a person. Donald O'Neill is not only a reporter, but he is a guild representative, a union representative at the newspaper. And he faced punishment and discipline from the same people with whom he sat down across the table and negotiated labor agreements. So they had an adversarial relationship. How does that happen? And the other thing is that has nothing to do with newspapers that came out in this series is those trips. This was for um, privileged white students from an exclusive, expensive private school. And they get the advantage of experts who spoke to them like adults. And then reacted like children listening to an expert and got the man fired. It's such an indictment of the way things are right now that, wow, take the time and read this piece. It is worth it. I think you're exactly right. It is worthy of listening to the notion that this journalistic voice lost his job because, as Dean Baquet is quoted as saying to him, 
And there's no reason to disbelieve any of the assiduous reporting that Donald McNeil presents to us. Dean Bacay said to him that he had to resign because he had, quote, lost the newsroom. And I don't know why a reporter needs to worry about having lost the newsroom. Obviously, it is. Yes, it is. It's exactly right. He's lost support of his colleagues, especially colleagues of color in the newsroom. That's a hell of a thing to say. That's why you lose this journalist. Well, something just doesn't add up to me. I I have not read the 20,000-word piece that he wrote. When the story initially broke, it just seemed to me that there was something missing in why they dismissed him so abruptly. Somebody who's been there for as long as he has, somebody who had the favorable reputation that he had. And And I don't know that there is something else that's beyond what is in black and white on these reports, but there's just something nagging at me that there was something that was built up and that this was a last straw situation because you just can't get rid of somebody with those kinds of credentials and history based on what appears to be one error as big as that error might have been. And I'm not sure about the size of that error because, again, the context of how this word came up, speaking to students in an academic setting, you know, if, if you can't talk about things in the academy, where else can you talk about them? That's where the thought processes are developed and that's where ideas are ingrained. And uh, so I, I don't know, just something still rings wrong for me about this whole story. There is nothing missing, Ira, from this 20,000-word account. And he does talk about all of that. There must be something more. And you will come away, I guarantee, with a feeling like this man should still have his job. We have lost something. Well, there's my assignment for the day. And my day is now fixed, uh, 20,000 words to go. Well, (laughs) well, 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 this business of there must have been something else is poisonous. Ira, you know how much I respect you, but it's poisonous because what happens is as soon as an irrational action happens, somebody comes forward and says there must have been something else. Well, you know, we saw one United States senator, we saw Garrison Keillor, we saw a whole bunch of people kicked out of their jobs because there, quote, must have been something else. Well, right now, it bothers me to hear that there must be something else because if there is, let's hear what it is. I think that the Times management is a little bit afraid of its own newsroom. Exactly. Uh, We've seen the firing of James Bennett, their editorial page editor, after he ran a column from Tom Cotton. It was a stupid and horrible column, don't get me wrong. But when his staffers, when the staffers of the New York Times protested that his voice had been included, the editor went. And now there's Donald McNeil is lost, too. There's fear in the newsroom. I spent years as a reporter who wanted power in a newsroom, but I'm beginning to think that there's too much power for those reporters in the New York Times. These are not good decisions that are being made based on winning the newsroom. Well said. All right. So if you're just joining us, this is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. That was Rosemary Armeo, Ira Fessfeld before her, and Dr. Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith, and we thank you for joining us. If you have thoughts on any of these topics, Email them to us, media at wamc.org. We're happy to have that. Another shift in the media these days, just thinking about what used to be important to us and what wasn't, we used to fret a lot about advocacy journalism. We used to say, those of us who work in the legacy media, so-called, that we needed to be straightforward and advocates. But here's a question of whether that isn't such an outmoded concept. We have a problem in this country with the coronavirus, and it is vaccine hesitancy. 
That is, people are stepping forward to get vaccines, but many people are not. There is skepticism. There is a lot of the population, especially in communities of color, that is reluctant to get the vaccine that we know can save lives. And so the question is, how should the news media respond to this? Shouldn't we be standing there? And it's a similar question to how we cover such things as Governor Abbott of Texas and the governor of Mississippi stopping the mandates that have been protecting people even as the infection rate is slowly ticking up once again. What is the appropriate response of major news media? Just try to play it straight down the middle, as people usually say, or isn't there more of a role nowadays for advocacy journalism? Well, first of all, I think you've always had advocacy journalism. In other words, just the picking of the stories, the placement of the stories. Uh, you can't kid me. I know what the New York Times biases are and the way they place their stories and the Washington Post. I love them, but I think that they are. The other thing I keep thinking about, guys, is that SNL, Saturday Night Live, you know, I read stuff in the newspapers and it's so namby-pamby and useless. And then I see them come on Saturday Night Live and make fun of people. And I say, they're really telling it like it is. Well, the newspapers aren't. Movies that are fictionalized can tell the truth sometimes better than a strict recounting. I, I don't advocate that for any of the news media. I think you stick to the facts. As far as advocacy here, yeah, we always have had it. I mean, why would a newspaper, for example, advocate against literacy or against a democratic government? Of course we have biases and we want people to go a certain way. And in this case, we are, as an industry, in favor of public health. So, yeah, I do think we should be pushing it. I think we should be debunking any rumors. We should be playing down any overblown reports of reaction because there hasn't been any. There are no deaths from this vaccine. We can debunk the stuff about there's microchips and Bill Gates trying to control you because there's craziness abroad. And that's the role of the media to say this is what a vaccine really is. Now, let's be reasonable and go get it. And I do think that Abbott and Governor Trent, I can't remember his last name in Mississippi, I, I do think they're going to get blown back from some people because their people will feel an effect from not getting vaccines that that is what ends up happening there this is dangerous what they're doing they're playing with people's lives we saw this with medicare which republican governors did not want to expand medicare there's no reason for that federal government was paying for it under obama it's only politics and now you're seeing them come turn around and people in red states are voting in favor of it so eventually by just doing our job we are going to make people see i think the light so just to be clear, are you suggesting then, Rosemary, that it should be reported in news coverage, but that the story should be written in such a way as to be clear that you're advocating the use of the vaccines? Or is yeah. it a more subtle version of the story that does basically yeah. he said, she says? No, you should definitely advocate for it. Why would you not? I mean, Donald Trump even said this will save us, right? So there's no division about this. Vaccines are good. Why would we publish anything else or make it subtle? No, I think it should be the headlines. <laughs> well, and I also think that the opinion pages and the uh, opinion essays that you hear on radio stations and digital outlets ought to self-police and not allow such crackpots as Robert Kennedy Jr. to spread this stupid poison about vaccines being unsafe. This is a time for us to be gatekeepers to the extent that we can. You know, we generally say let a thousand flowers bloom if you're you know, have a little Marxist background and say, let's go ahead and let everybody be heard that sunlight is the best disinfectant and all of those nice, trite sayings that have always encouraged us to 
allow points of view to be heard even if we disagree with them. In this case, I don't think that's right. In this case, too many lives are at stake for us to allow the stupid people who are standing against these vaccines to have a voice. They do not deserve it. So I'm fully in favor of journalists being advocates in this case to protect lives. And I think that extends to the news coverage. And nowadays, of course, we see the news coverage always saying the big lie of the Republican Party that Biden was not elected legitimately. And I think we need to articulate that over and over again and make it very clear that we're standing on the side of truth, even when that makes some people uncomfortable. I don't see any way around it if you're going to be a truth teller. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> well <done. laughs> yeah, right. Finally, today, in our last couple of minutes, we need to talk about Andrew Cuomo, because as last week, we talked about the Cuomo problem on CNN, having had Christopher Cuomo welcome his brother on the air when he was flying high in the polls. It has created a real credibility problem for CNN going forward. Alan, you're probably the most vigorous CNN viewer. I think you're, you've really taken a lot of CNN content. Have they done any better with the latest issues that Andrew Cuomo has confronted, the allegations of sexual harassment? Have they been covering that effectively? Well, let me put it this way. I don't watch them as much as you may think I watch them, although I do watch. And I can tell you that they have been aggressive where Andrew Cuomo is concerned. That may, Rex, as you may suggest, be make good, <laughs> you know, for their little problem with Christopher. I don't know. But I know one thing. I watch a lot, and they're tough on Andrew. And maybe that has to do with their credibility problem with Christopher. Well, I agree that CNN has been very aggressive on the story. I'm, I'm not sure, although I don't rule out Alan's posit that it's a make good situation. But CNN has done very well, except between 9 and 10 o'clock on weeknights when Chris Cuomo is on. And they have a problem of their own making. Their rule was somebody like Chris Cuomo should not have or should not be covering his brother. And they broke that rule during the pandemic's early days when Andrew became a media star and they brought him on and they had these folksy family conversations. They never should have allowed that to happen. And they are correctly not allowing that to happen now. So it's a problem that they created for themselves. But I believe they have more than made up for the problem because they can't be charged with not having covered Cuomo, Andrew, and not having covered him aggressively. They, they certainly have. Well, you know, I use this in my journalism ethics class, and I absolutely think it was a violation of conflict of interest for Chris Cuomo to ever interview his brother and basically promoted his brother. They both gained in popularity during those pandemic segments, which were popular, and they were good. And so now they're trying to undo the mistake. I think it worries us in the media a whole lot more than the audience. It's probably all going to work out just fine. I agree with that 100%. I don't think this is on most people's radar. A rare moment of agreement where we have to end the show. How about that? Everybody's happy. <laughs> Thank you all. Except for uh, me. I'm never happy. Oh, well, we don't care. Alan Chartok. It wasn't me against one this week. <laughs> that was good. Rosemary Armeo, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our wonderful producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. Common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> 